0: the book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. The club book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Sarah Pretzky at Dakota County's Galaxy Library in Apple Valley. Detective fiction favorite Sarah Pretzky is the author of more than 20 books including the New York Times best-selling V.I. Warshawski series. Warshowski, an intrepid private investigator from Chicago, always makes the top of the list when people talk about female operatives in literature, according to the New York Times. In recognition of her achievements to date, mystery writers of America named Pretsky a grand master of the genre in 2011. She earned the prestigious Anthony Award, Lifetime Achievement Award that same year. Her latest novel, Brushback, hit shelves this July. Paretsky plots more conscientiously than anyone else in her field, and this latest installment of the V.I. Warshawski series is no exception, notes Kirkus Reviews.
1: Thank you all, thank you very much, it's very good to be here, and I know As in flying, you have a choice in entertainment. You could have been downtown watching the hockey. And had it been the Blackhawks, I probably would have jumped out of the car and (laughs) stayed downtown myself. So thank you for uh, putting me ahead of ice hockey. I also want to thank Tammy uh, and the rest of the staff at at this library for their hospitality and for making this possible. For very selfish reasons, I'm always happy to support libraries because libraries are the biggest supporters of writers like me. When I started my career, I was not a New York Times bestseller, I was barely a seller, but I started my career back when you could sell 3,500 copies of a book and be considered profitable enough by the publisher that they would want you to go on. And 2,500 of those 3,500 books were sold to the public libraries in the United States. And so it's thanks to libraries that I have a career at all. So I'm always very grateful to them and very happy to return the favor. I'm going to talk a little bit about my life as a writer, my life, my depression over what's happening with women in the mystery. Then we'll have questions, and you can ask me anything because I'm a fiction writer. Even if I don't know, I'll make it up. <laughs> if you want to write a bestseller and you're too lazy to think of anything original yourself, you are pretty well guaranteed success if you tamper with Jane Austen, especially with Pride and Prejudice. We've had at least 20 spin offs in the last few years, including Mr. Darcy's Daughters. Jane Austen in Boca, and the bar Sinister, in which Mr. Darcy has fathered an illegitimate child on the Pemberley estate. Now, Austen believed Darcy to be a moral and an ethical person, but really, what did she know? (laughs) There's a recent Austen incubus which trumps them all. It's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, (laughs) and it begins it's a truth universally acknowledged that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. Now, I often read works by other writers in wish i have been creative, creative enough to think of their structure or to use language with their grace. This particular opening sentence isn't one of those occasions. <laughs> I don't know what it is with zombies, vampires, Jane Austen, and our current age, but every time my husband and I run out of episodes of Orange is the New Black or NCIS, and like all good Americans slump back on our couch and channel surf, it seems that our only choices are either reality TV or movies about vampire wolves from outer space, although maybe those really are docudramas. When I was 11, my older brother gave me Bram Stoker's Dracula. The book terrified me so much that I stopped sleeping. I would lie in bed all night waiting for Dracula to morph into a wolf and crash through my window. We lived in the country. I grew up in rural Kansas. Our nearest neighbors were cows on one side and cornfields on the other three, which is perfect cover for lurking vampire wolves. My brother was conscience-stricken. He gave me one of my mother's sterling silver dinner knives to sleep with, because in Stoker's novel, silver keeps the vampire at bay. The knife did help me sleep better, but when my mother found it in my bedclothes, she was furious with me for taking silver out of the dining room. My long insomniac nights began again, until at 3 one morning, a noise brought me to the window, and I saw a whole pack of wolves in the truck garden behind our house. I screamed so loudly that my parents and all my brothers woke and came running. The neighbor's cows had trampled down the fence in the night and were helping themselves to our sweet corn. (laughs) My father went out to the garden and sent them home, really with more dispatch than Mr. Darcy slashing a zombie. I was kind of a heroine for saving the vegetables, but I never did overcome my nighttime fears my long bouts of insomnia where I imagine all the terrors that might be stalking me. I actually wrote a novel, Bleeding Kansas, set in the part of Kansas where I grew up, and one of the families in it runs a dairy farm. Perhaps someone who couldn't tell the difference between a wolf and a cow really had no business writing about dairy farming. (laughs) But it occurred to me too late in the process that I could have written a bestseller about zombie vampire cows. When I was just starting to read and to write, my favorite books were set in safe, often magical places. The Secret Garden, the Narnia stories, especially Little Women showed children in safety, protected by the walled garden or the magic lion or the wise and loving Marmee. The first stories I wrote were also like that. They were set in secret walled spaces where no dangers, no vampires, wolves, or other terrifying figures could penetrate. I think my lifelong fascination with crime fiction reflects this. I don't like horror stories. I don't like serial killers or rape and dismemberment stories. I want characters who make me feel safe, however briefly, however illusorily, and I think maybe my detective V.I. in turn makes other people feel a modicum of safety. When I was a child, my parents used to call me Sarah Bernhardt. It wasn't exactly affectionate. The name reflected their frustration with me for making drama, melodrama, out of life. My mother's reaction to finding her silver in my bedsheets was only one of our many misunderstandings. I was terrified of vampire wolves. She thought I was trying to attract attention by enacting histrionics. In fact, when I was 9 or 10, my parents gave me Mark Twain's personal recollections of Joan of Arc to read. They wanted me to see the dire fate that awaited girls who felt life too intensely. Who overreacted to the world around them. Everyone has their own style of parenting I guess. (laughs) Unfortunately reading about Joan of Arc had a ricochet effect on me. Her life didn't make me want to retreat to the model of domestic servitude that my parents envisioned as my future. Instead, I longed for Joan's ardor. I longed for a vision of the magnitude of hers and the strength to execute it. Joan of Arc also gave me a lifelong fear and fascination with fire. After Mark Twain, I read about the fires of the Spanish Inquisition and England's Bloody Mary Tudor. I still feel my skin turn gray and cold when I think about being burned at the stake Fire looms large in many of my novels. Arson is the theme of burn marks. Flames of all kinds are burning through bleeding Kansas. V.I. and a Catholic nun are both damaged in a terrible fire and hardball. I fear, maybe more than anything, I fear the destruction of the self, of myself. And how much more completely can you be destroyed than by fire? We're living these days in a time of instability and uncertainty. Our whole country seems to be in a more or less constant state of fear. Although when I was sitting down working on these remarks and thinking about it, I thought in some ways our country has always been in a constant state of fear. I uh, was thinking of the 1884 presidential election, which was enlivened by the fear that Grover Cleveland, in appealing to the Irish immigrant vote, would allow the Pope and the Jesuits to run the country, substituting canon law for the Constitution. If you substitute Sharia for canon law, I think you can see that our fears have very deep roots. My childhood, and maybe yours if you're as old as I am, was filled with the need to be vigilant against communism. Nuclear war might be horrible, but we needed to be prepared to endure it so that we could stand up to the red menace. When ABC filmed the day after in my hometown, Lawrence, Kansas, about the terrible aftermath of using nuclear weapons, President Reagan tried to stop the release of the movie because he said it would show the Russians that we were scared of radioactive fallout. In the 1950s, the Department of Defense tested different public relations campaigns to see which would be most effective in getting Americans to embrace the nuclear arms race. The goal was to make us afraid enough of Russian bombs to support building our own arsenal, but not so fearful of destruction that we would demand a nuclear weapons ban. Today, although we still fear communism and socialism, our overriding fears have been reduced to a single point. We live in terror of those whose mission it is to terrify us, international terrorists. I think one key difference between our fears today and those of the past, even those of my childhood, let alone those of the 1880s, is the 24-hour news cycle where every thought, every fear, every conspiracy is constantly broadcast and amplified by Twitter, Facebook, and the blogosphere. And I have to say, there are days when the frenzied rhetoric exhausts me. I can't cope with high-voltage screeching about radical socialism, pet coke, high unemployment, tiger moms, Planned Parenthood, genetically modified crops, earthquakes, terrorism, and Sandra Bullock's marriage all jumbled together in an insistent and unending 24-hour stream. I don't know if today's government calibrates our fear levels, as they did during the arms race, to make us afraid enough of terrorists to support NSA surveillance, but not so fearful that we will keep handguns away from people on terrorism watch lists. But I do know that fear makes creative thought and work close to impossible. So what's the appropriate response of a writer in times like these? At the most basic level, I think it's my job to continue to write stories that people will want to read, to be an entertainer, which is what I am, basically. More fundamentally, I think it's my job to fumble my way as close as I can to the truth, and I don't mean the truth about what's happening in the political world, I mean the fundamental emotional truths that underlie our long journey, the journey of life. I don't want to accept a slippery, slipshod misuse of language or ideas. I don't want to allow fear to lead me into self-censorship. I came slowly to my own writing voice. In one sense, I was always writing and imagining stories. My older brother My brother is three years older than I am, taught me to read and write when he learned, and we began writing stories together when I was five. In another sense, though, the turmoil in my childhood home, a volatile compound of parental rage, alcohol, and intense neediness, made me feel that I was living behind a glass wall that left me affectless, certainly not a person who could be active and engaged enough in the world to write for publication. Growing up in the country and as a girl in a conservative milieu, I lived a pretty isolated life. Like many people, I turned from that loneliness to the world of books. I started writing as a young child, as as I said, stories that reflected the fantasy worlds into which books helped me escape. The books that I read and the stories that I wove out of them became more present for me than the dull routine around me. In adolescence, I discovered the world of English crime novels. Peter Wimsey and Albert Campion were particularly beguiling to me because they dwelt in a land of manners and wealth, and especially of order. And I lived in a house that was full of anger and books, yes, but massive disorder. It was the orderliness. The good manners, the elegant repartee that I coveted, not the puzzles that whimsy and Campion solved. From about the age of 13 on, I read crime novels in preference to almost any other kind of book. In fact, I've lately come to realize that I never am going to read Paradise Lost. Very likely, I will never make it all the way through Don Quixote. And I've given up on David Foster Wallace, too. As I became a more sophisticated reader, I discovered that the lives of women in fiction were as much, if not more, limited than my own. Broadly speaking, women in the mystery have been the inconstant, deceptive, manipulative monsters of whom the archetype is Brigid O'Shaughnessy in The Maltese Falcon, or they've been the innocent virginal types who get themselves in a peck of trouble and are rescued by a male hero. Even Harriet Vane and the combined female intelligences of Shrewsbury College needed Peter Wimsey to rescue them, and Dorothy Sayers called herself a feminist. Crime fiction throughout much of its 160 year history defined women by their sexual behavior. Good girls were chaste, bad girls weren't. Chaste girls were so helpless that they could barely tie their shoes without adult supervision. Starting with Lady Audley's Secret, published by Mary Elizabeth Braddon in 1862, bad girls could act, but they were only able to commit evil deeds. Notable 20th century heroines include Carmen Sternwood in Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. When Philip Marlowe meets Carmen Sternwood in the hallway of her father's house, Carmen greets him just as you or I might welcome a stranger. Marlow tells us she turned her body slowly and lightly without lifting her feet. Her hands dropped limp at her sides. She tilted herself toward me on her toes. She fell straight back into my arms. I had to catch her or let her crack her head on the tessellated floor. I caught her under her arms and she went rubber-legged on me instantly. I had to hold her close to hold her up. When her head was against my chest, she screwed it around and giggled at me. (laughs) Now, I would advise you not to try this maneuver at home without adult supervision or a good chiropractor on call. Of course, some women in crime fiction defied those stereotypes. George Strangeways, Nicholas Blake's explorer heroine, is resilient and triumphant in his 1939 novel, The Smiler with the Knife. Perhaps the most defiant of all in a cheerful jello-eating kind of way was Nancy Drew. Nancy was beautiful. She was poised, skilled in every art known to man or to woman. She could grapple as easily with a broken-down car or the law of the levers she could with ballroom dancing. She possessed independence, money, And the things that money can buy, like a sporty roadster. I was so bummed when I found it was blue. I was sure it was red. And I kept saying, a sporty red roadster. And people kept correcting me. And I finally went back to the source. Blue. A sporty blue roadster. How can a blue roadster be sporty? (laughs) Nancy was the ringleader of her set. And she was known as much for her charity as for her quick wits. I would say that Nancy lacked only two things, siblings, and domestic responsibilities. Everything came so easily to her that as a child, I couldn't identify with her at all. The heroines I turned to, who consoled me and gave me space in the private room of my mind, battled against the limiting odds of female experience. They were often plain. They were buried under Cinderella-like mountains of domestic chores. They were poor. And they were usually told that the work that they aspired to was a closed door for girls. They might triumph despite these obstacles, but the price they paid was often very high. I guess female heroes had to be Joan of Arc to engage my sympathy. Raise the siege of Orléans. Crown the Dauphin. Die by fire. When I was on tour with Brushback, a number of people asked why V.I. undergoes such a tough time physically. They said, she gets beat up more than other investigators, male or female. The questions made me re-examine my books, and at first I thought, yeah, they're right. Only Joan of Arc has suffered more for her beliefs than (laughs) (laughs) V.I. Orchovsky. V.I. was knocked out and left to die in Deadstick Pond on Chicago's southeast side. Then she struggled out of the so-called sanitary canal that borders Chicago's industrial strip, only to have to rescue her alcoholic aunt from a hotel fire, survive a fall from the unenclosed deck of a high-rise under construction, fight off rats in the tunnels below downtown Chicago, and most recently be dumped in a mountain of pet coke to suffocate. As an ominous anonymous caller reminded her in my third book, Killing Orders, You were lucky, Ms. Warshawski, but no one is lucky forever. So why do I put the poor woman through all this? I think, in part, it has to do with my own feelings of helplessness, which increase as I age. I've spent much of my adult life trying to help strengthen women's voices, women's rights to be full citizens. And sometimes lately, I feel as though the work I've given my life to has so... Completely has come so completely undone that I become deeply depressed. Other days I'm more optimistic, but one thing is unmistakable. In crime fiction, the genre that reflects popular beliefs back to us through popular culture, women are under savage attack. As women began taking up more space both in fiction and the workplace, the graphic rape and dismemberment of women began to take center stage in crime fiction. Many of these books are set in the world of sex trafficking. Some writers, most famously Stieg Larsen in the Millennium Trilogy, are writing with the stated goal of exposing the horrors of what is indisputably a horrible part of modern life. A number of other internationally best-selling writers, many of them self-identified feminists, share this stated purpose in addressing the abuse of women. I think the line between exploitation and exposure is a very hard one to walk. While I'm aware of and appalled by the widespread abuse of women and children, including trafficking, slavery, enforced prostitution, and murder for sadistic pleasure, I haven't figured out a way to address this massive violence in my fiction. As with any difficult topic, Fiction should raise awareness without preaching and in my opinion, without titillating. Given the number of writers willing to incorporate assault against women into their work, I don't think the fact that I'm not talking about it is very noticeable. Recent books have shown women hung from the ceiling in cages. Alex Lemaitre, the best-selling French writer. Women sodomized and beaten. Haywood Gold, American film writer women skinned, women murdered while having sex. It is perhaps my failure as a reader and a feminist, but the weight of these books, even those with a stated feminist intent, leaves me feeling degraded, not empowered. At the same time that writers are bringing graphic rape, dismemberment, snuff films, and human trafficking into myriad crime novels, They're also subjecting their female heroes to serious abuse. Today's female often has been brutally assaulted herself, as was the case with Lisbeth Salander, or suffered some other form of serious trauma. It's as if the only acceptable reason for a woman to embrace the investigative life is to recover from damage or get revenge, not because she takes pleasure in the work and comes to it as a free spirit. Women fighting crime are also often small. Elizabeth Salander is five feet tall. She weighs 88 pounds. She doesn't have noticeable breasts or hips. She's acceptable to readers and reviewers because she looks like a boy, a child, not a woman. Imagine her as five foot eight with a G-cup and weighing 160 pounds. As the boy-girl, the rape we feel a certain patronizing protectiveness towards her. But if she took up room, had a woman's mature body, we might back away from her. A friend of mine who I think is a very gifted and under-read crime writer, Liza Cody, English writer, wrote a book a number of years ago called Bucket Nut, which in fact featured such a large woman abuse survivor. I think it's one of the most brilliant novels I've ever read, both as a novel and as a, as a crime novel. It's told in the first person by a woman who has little impulse control and no no self-reflective capabilities, and yet by the end of the book you are so empathic with this character that you're really weeping for her. And Liza does it all without graphic descriptions of whatever it was that Eva, her, her hero, endured as a child, but just kind of lays it out for you in a, in a masterful way. But the fact that this is a big woman makes it really hard for the reader to feel the kind of protective, loving care for her that we do for Elizabeth Salander, the 88 pound. Amazingly strong and agile and capable street fighter. When detectives like my character, V.I., or Kinsey Milholm, or Carlotta Carlisle, came to life in the early 1980s, it was when we were pushing the boundaries of what women could be and do. We wrote out of a kind of cockiness that we're doing a job because we want it. We like the work. No one can stop us. So on second thought, I have to say that V.I. takes a lot less abuse than most women in contemporary fiction. She is, however, more like Joan of Arc in that she chooses action. Most especially, she chooses speech. The kind of speech that the powerful, the modern-day Burgundians who own vast swaths of capital and control much of today's labor and their fiefdoms, they don't want to hear what she has to say. She's not an example of femme jeppe, the female in jeopardy. She chooses to stand to the, up to the relentless efforts to silence her,
0: to silence other
1: women, to silence anyone, male or female, who lives on the margins without access to power. We all have one or two fundamental questions about life about our own lives that we keep returning to and trying to sort out. One of mine has to do with how to act as a moral person in a world where peer pressure, market pressure, ambition, or cowardice make it easy for me to take the soft option. I've spent my life trying to understand cruelty, both the petty acts that we all do, or at least I do from time to time, and the gross acts the Soviet gulags, Auschwitz, Rwanda, that most of us pray we will never commit. I study people like Nelson Mandela, trying to learn how they survive extreme situations with their sense of personhood intact. Or how some tiny handful of people like Jan and Antonia Zabinski, the director of the Warsaw Zoo and his wife, were strong enough to risk death or torture by rescuing Jews in Nazi-occupied Poland. I read the poems of the Russian writer Akhmatova, who stood up to Stalin even when he punished her by imprisoning her son in a naked statement of the power he had over every Russian's life. I study the women of Birmingham, Alabama, who organized the bus boycott of 1956 and ignited the civil rights movement. I think of the people who stood silent when the pogrom or the lynch mobs went by, not participating, but never speaking out. My fear, in addition to the other fears that I've already talked about, my fear is that in any extreme situation, I would not be Ahmatova or Zabinski, but one of the bystanders, not a perpetrator, but someone too cowardly to speak up, to act. So I pushed VI to act and speak in an effort to force myself to confront my own weaknesses. I originally sent my books in the world of white-collar crime because I'd worked in management, I'd worked in the financial sector, and I knew that milieu in a way I don't know the back alleys and docklands that a writer like Elmer Leonard used to cover. I felt passionately about the subject as well. Street crime is nasty and frightening, and I live in a scary part of a scary city. Street crime damages lives, but it doesn't do the grand-scale destruction that white-collar crime can. For instance, the Johns Manville Company started X-raying their miners in the 1930s to see how fast asbestosis was progressing in their workforce. Management wanted that information to calculate workforce turnover. The company never told miners they were ill, and they fought paying benefits for their sick and dying workers for almost two decades with the aggressive support of their Lloyd's underwriters. That story underlay the book that I wrote called Bloodshot. I don't start work on any novel thinking, oh, this book ought to have this message. I think this is a story that's interesting enough that I want to live with it for 18 months, which is about how long it takes me to write a book. Some ideas I have to abandon because I can't make this story small enough for a solo private detective. That's true, for example, of big oil, way too big for VI to tackle. started reading about the, the mafia that runs the oil fields, and I thought, oh, not even the girl detective can take that on. <laughs> I'm not interested in writing propaganda novels any more than I want to read them. That is, books written only to make a point, to show that four legs are better than two, or all males are testosterone-crazed villains, or women inevitably use their bodies to make good boys do bad things. There's a reason that the (coughs) writers we know from Stalin's Russia are Pasternak and Akhmatova, not Nikolai Rybachev who wrote Spring in the Victory Collective Farm, a peon to Ivan who inspires his lazy co-workers by staying on his tractor 24-7 until the potato harvest is brought in. Great poem. (laughs) Pasternak may have wanted to make a point, an ardently felt point about human freedom, about the confusion that we feel in the midst of social upheavals, and how hard it is to know how to act. But he wanted to write about human beings caught up in events, not idealized political types. And that is my goal as well. Really, I aspire to write like Charles Dickens and Elizabeth Gaskell, because both of them were storytellers first and foremost. But they wrote their stories against the backdrop of poverty, homelessness, sweatshop labor, the extreme disparities of wealth in Victorian England. Their books were so effective that we never see those problems anymore. (laughs) When I was doing some background research leading up to this talk, I came on a book called Books on Fire. It was a book about the destruction of books. It was a book about the millions of books and papyruses that have been burned either accidentally or on purpose since in the mere 5,000 years of the written word, millions more, I mean, I know, we don't even know how many millions of, of manuscripts and books and so on disappeared along the way, but we do know that At least five million books were deliberately destroyed by the German and Russian armies in the Second World War, and we know that book burning was a big hobby of all totalitarian regimes. Well, faced with the many millions of books that were destroyed in the war, some of the writers quoted in books on fire threw up their hands in despair. What was the point of writing anything, they said, of adding to the world's philosophy or poetry or novels? if it had no effect on public behavior, if books were still burned. These writers were so felt so helpless that they retreated behind a self-created wall of silence. But I have the opposite reaction. I think that the passion that books inflame is proof that they're doing their job and that we writers are doing our job. Stalin murdered the poets Mandelstam and Svetayeva, Writers have been burned at the stake for their words. Michael Servetus by Calvin in 1553 Geneva. Servetus, never mind what the argument was about, but Calvin burned him. Rabbi Akiba was burned by the Romans in 137 AD in Jerusalem, but their words survived. Indeed, legend has it that as Akiba's body began to be consumed in the flames, the Hebrew letters took physical shape, and flew to heaven where they guided his soul home. The Egyptian Pharaoh, Ramses II, who died around 1200 BC, had his tomb built over his great palace in Thebes. Underneath the tomb are three chambers. One's the dining hall where he could eat with all of his post-mortem visitors. One was the great reception hall, and the third was his library. The tomb has long since been looted, so we don't know what he read or collected, but chiseled over the library doorway is the inscription, the cure for the soul. My soul is cured when I stand among books. It's what keeps me going. Being in a library, for me, is always a cure for the soul. So thank you very much for joining me here tonight in this place of curing.
0: And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Sarah Paretsky and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member commenting that Paretsky has an amazing ability to make the city of Chicago come to life in her novels. What is her approach?
1: I think some of it is because I came to the city as an outsider. There are things that I'll never know the way a real, tried and true, died in the wool Chicago and we'll know. But I, I came there, I was 19 and I was doing volunteer work in a youth program sort of on the fringes of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And we would, you know, Chicago, how many people here have ever lived in the city? No, just a handful. It's a very parochial city in some ways. People are wedded to their neighborhoods, and um, we had kids who had never been downtown, I mean, not even to see the Christmas decorations. So, part of our mission was just to get them to see the bigger city that they lived in and give them an idea that diversity could involve other things than throwing rocks at each other. Uh, so, <laughs> Um, We'd we'd take them well, to Wrigley Field or to other places, and then we'd get back to the church where our youth group was meeting and ask them what they'd seen. And we always thought they were, or at the start, we thought they would be talking about the big buildings or this and that. They saw things close up. They saw the detail. They saw drunks lying on rooftops or foxes running alongside the L tracks. And so it, it, it shifted. How I, how I thought and saw, and even though it was many years before I began writing for publication, it did make me kind of absorb the lesson that, that an effective story depends on making it personal, intimate, human, close up. Um, so that's, that's the eye that I see the city with. And I make mistakes I get geography wrong or things like that, and then I hear from people who really know the city, but I don't hear from them in a mean-spirited way, and, and so I, I welcome those kinds of letters because they often include personal histories that then, being a vampire myself, I suck their stories out of them <laughs> and um, and use them in a different context. I have to say, you know, when I was first creating VI and Uh, it was such an eye-opener for me coming from a rural area to a city where people are so wedded to their ethnic identity or racial identity in place of national origin and I had a job after after my volunteer work ended I had a job as a secretary at the University of Chicago and kids would come to me, hyphenated Polish-American kids, wanted me to get them into closed classes or waive late fees, and I'd say no, and they'd say, you're a traitor to the Polish nation. And I was like, I'm just the department secretary. You know, I, I'm not a grand enough person to betray the entire Polish nation. But um, when, I saw, when I started with VI, I, I knew that she had to have an ethnic identity and I knew I couldn't write about African American or Latino or Mexican experience with any credibility, or Irish really, which is still the biggest European uh, American ethnic group in the Chicago area. So, I thought, well, one of my grandfathers came from, what well, was Poland when he came from there. It isn't Poland anymore. And I thought, well, in Warsaw, I don't know what names belong to what languages. I said, War saw that's in Poland. Worsowski, that's got to be a Polish name. <laughs> and then some snot at the University of Chicago in the linguistics department came up to me at a party one night and said, you know, you've chosen a, country, uh, a name with no dis- discernible place of national origin. I said, Worsowski, it's Polish. He said, not the way you spelled it. <laughs> 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 and then... Um, Oh, just one more thing about that before we move on, but um, actually I could say many more things about it, but um, I learned many years later that when Isaac Vesheva Singer first came to this country, he wrote for the Jewish Daily Forward under the initials I.V. Worshofsky. So um, I, well, I'm channeling the big time.
0: Our next audience member notes that music is such a large part of Pretsky's novels. Does music play a large role in her life as well?
1: I'm not very knowledgeable m- musically. I love to listen to it, and um, I sing in a very amateurish way. I used to sing in a, in a choir. They threw me out because my musicianship was so terrible. I was always coming in on the wrong measure, and, It hurt my feelings, but at the same time, I didn't really blame them because I thought it must be very annoying. (laughs) Um, But I guess, um, yeah, music is really important to me. And yet it's one of those things that I feel like, gosh, I write about it a lot, but I don't know very much about it.
0: (laughs) This question asker mentions that Chicago is ripe with political scandals. Does Sarah Pretzky ever use these real-life situations in her series?
1: In the years that I've lived in Chicago, we've sent four governors to prison. I voted for three of them. Um, We don't have a budget in the state right now because the governor and the Speaker of the House are at loggerheads. But that actually... Illinois politics is actually kind of the backbone of what underlies the the main story in brushback and how it affects people at the neighborhood level. Um, you know, my first year in Chicago, the the newspaper columnist Mike Royko, whose name some of you may remember, he had a kind of an informal competition in the Daily News as to whether the state of New Jersey where the city of Chicago would have more elected officials under federal indictment by the end of the year. And New Jersey won by one, um, which was kind of like pitting the whole state against just our city, so really I think mean, even though we came in second we had a pretty good run there. But I also have to say that that corruption in Chicago and the interplay between business and politics and Really, the mob, um, street thuggery, and so on—you can understand it. You can sort it out and make sense of it, and write about it. I, I don't—I don't think I could understand that kind of connection in, in New York because it's just so much more massive. You see that it's going on. You see that the real estate deals and the politics and the mob and so on are are operating in just kind of high stakes and terrifying ways, but, but I, I can't understand it. In Chicago, yeah, with the second city. Our crime is easier to understand, so it's easier to write about.
0: Our next question comes from a reader who comments that V.I. Warshawski is constantly putting herself in harm's way, which often frustrates the characters close to her. Why does Sarah Pretzky make this choice for her protagonist?
1: I think that, in some ways, I've let the friction between Lottie and V.I. get to be too intense, and I want to dial that back, the book that I've just started work on. Actually, I'm not sure what role Lottie will play in it. I'm not sure I can write this book. I always... I don't know. I often feel that way at the start of a book, but more so with this one. Um, but uh, but I, I've... This question is one that I've been really thinking through and thinking it, it's, it's, it's become too much of a cliche in my books, and I've, I've just gone to that well kind of out of habit, and I, I don't like it, and I want to rethink it and make what she's doing in the context of her friends more cooperative, or at least they have more understanding of what she's doing and what she's going through. I started. The friction with Lottie came out of a very understandable place. Lottie loves Vi deeply. She lost her family in the Second World War. She doesn't want Vi risking herself and risking another loss of someone that she's let be close to her. That made good sense, but now it's become just, I think, not not a good thing in in the in the series. So. As Gibbs likes to say, working on it.
0: This audience member asks, how much of herself did Sarah Paretsky place in V.I. Warshawski, either consciously or subconsciously?
1: I'll say that I didn't really think about it in that way in the beginning. When I wrote the first novel, I wanted to see if I could write a novel. It had been a fantasy of mine, a daydream for many years. You know, I, I grew up in a milieu, as I said, where kind of the domestic option was the option. I think my parents, who were they were intellectuals, and my father had many women's students. He was a bacteriologist. Many women students that he supported, but in the context of their home, their life, their expectation was that I would be there looking after them, their children, the house, blah, blah, blah. And so for a lot of my life, I was sort of sleepwalking and not just having a hard time getting, um, I can't remember what they call it when rockets take off, but getting enough lift to. (laughs) stage velocity to get me out of that atmosphere and and up and so I I, you know I didn't marry and I didn't follow the and I certainly I fled Kansas to get away from that you know I didn't I didn't have a goal I didn't have a career I worked jobs and I did an MBA and worked in management and you know, all this time I'm not really choosing, I'm not making a direction, but all this time I'm still writing very privately and imagining myself as a published writer. Um, and then reading crime fiction and then finally getting galvanized by really with the aid of second wave feminism and the kind of analysis that I started making of the crime fiction I was writing wanting to create a woman detective and wanting to see if I could actually write a novel. But it took many years, you know, from when I first had the fantasy about doing it to when I actually did do it. So, uh, long answer to a short question. The first book wasn't, I wasn't thinking through those kinds of, of questions. It was a real effort to prove that I could do a book from beginning to end. and. Um, was only later as the, and I wasn't planning a series. You know, Sue Grafton and I published our first books the same year, but well, she started with A A's for alibi. She obviously had a plan going forward. <laughs> I didn't. Um, I, and uh, It was only because my agent, my publishers, they wanted a series, because series are more sellable than standalone novels that I, then wrote the second book, and the third book, and the tenth book, and the... Um, and, and so then I had to, to start really kind of answering that question or, or sorting it out. Now, there are first-person narratives, and it's a series, so she very much reflects my outlook on the world, because in a standalone novel, even with a first-person narrative, I could create someone who's very much different From me, but to be doing this for as many years as I've been doing it with this same character, and especially in the first person, no, she has to reflect my, my worldview. But having said that, she takes a lot of risks that I would never take. She's much, she's really tougher than I am in every possible way, both physically and morally and ethically, and um, you know, her dogs are really fit. My dog is six pounds overweight um, and uh, doesn't come when she's called. So there's, there's just no way that I'm as good as V.I. is. And also, even though she doesn't do her vocal exercises, because she grew up with Gabriela, she has great musicianship. She'd never be thrown out of the choir. She would always come in on the right machine.
0: This question asker wonders if Paretsky thinks that other female crime writers are affecting how the genre is defined.
1: I think we did in the 80s. I think that when Sue and I and Linda Barnes and some of the other writers from that period, Linda Grant, Marilyn Wallace, when we were starting, we really kind of created a sea change in the way that that mysteries were being written, the way that men and male and female roles were being seen. I don't think that's true anymore and, and I think it's one of the things that has me scratching my head and, and wondering about it because you know that, that litany that I went through of the kind of the dismemberment and so on a lot of those writers are women, a lot of them are people who call themselves feminists. I mean Mo Hayder, she has a serial killer who's skinning his victims and curing their skin and writing messages on it. And uh, she says this is a form of empowerment for women. This is um, claiming the narrative. And I'm like, okay, Mo, it works for you, and uh, you have a lot more readers than I do, so it's obviously working for them, but I have to confess I don't get it. It doesn't feel empowering to me. So I, I just think that there's, so, a I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that um, maybe we created a bit of a revolution, the revolution is over, and now everybody's kind of doing the same thing. I don't know.
0: The last question of the night is whether or not V.I. Warshawski will ever have a grand romance.
1: This is another problem with having a series book, a series character, is that... um, a lot of the time the affairs that she started have been out of an investigation and there's an erotic tension that rises between her and she is heterosexual. and My friend Nicole Hollander, the cartoonist who used to draw Sylvia, um, someone once, a woman once made a pass at her and Nicole said, alas, I'm cursed by heterosexuality <laughs> and um, and so is V.I. Um, but. Uh, So there's an erotic tension and ends up in bed and then the next book, okay, there she is with this guy and he has to play some role in the book. He can't just be, you know, she can't just pull him out of a drawer. Um, And so it slows down the action trying to accommodate the romance. So, um, I don't know, maybe the last book in the series, maybe if I get to be 90 and I'm still alive and I'm still writing, I'll let VI retire to, there used to be a a retirement home here in the Twin Cities for circus performers. Uh, I read about this decades ago. I read about this, one of my old jobs used to be covering, um, back in the days before the internet, I worked for a company that clipped news stories from 130 daily newspapers and looked for trends emerging and what, what all these papers were covering. So this is a long time ago. But um, the, the women in this uh, old folks home, um, they would turn tricks with the guys for their social security checks on the first of the month. So I'm thinking maybe when I'm 90 and ready to hang up my spurs, V.I. will retire to this circus home and <laughs> have a grand romance. I mean, yeah, I'd like to see her happy and fulfilled. I used to wonder if I should give her a baby. Of course, she's a little old for that now. And then I was trying to imagine, what would she do with it? She'd put it out in the backyard with the dogs and leave it for Mr. Contreras to look after. And <laughs> child welfare would be involved. Or, and I thought she'd get a Harley with a sidecar and there'd be... The, so, anyway, it never happened.
0: <laughs> that wraps up our Galaxy Library event with Sarah Pretzky in Dakota County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Maria Mills at 7 p.m. Tuesday, October 6th at Scott County's Prior Lake Library. Journalist Maria Mills made a name for herself in the literature world last year with the publication of her much-anticipated The Mockingbird Next Door. It is considered the definitive biography on Harper Lee, the reclusive literary luminary who penned one of the best-loved novels of the 20th century. Meet Maria Mills, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.